Um, well, it's nine o'clock, so I'm going to start talking uh, until people until people come in. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to uh, while for the next like minute, I'm going to say something that is not important at all, just to have encourage people to come in. Yeah, really quick in the next minute before anyone comes in. Uh, no, so there's something I think about every Sunday morning, and it is um, incredibly unimportant. There's a comedian who has a joke about going to the store, and the salesperson comes up and says, hey, if you need anything, my name is Jill. And he says, wow, I've never met anyone with a conditional identity before. What if I don't need anything? Then what's your name? Is your name like Greg? And I think about this every Sunday morning because inevitably someone gets up and introduces themselves and says, hey, if you haven't met me, my name is. And I have to fight the 12-year-old inside of me who wants to say, if I have met you, what's your name? So regardless of whether you've met me or not, my name is Michael Bowser. And um, we are picking up sort of where Jonathan left off last week uh, with church history. So if you weren't here last week, uh, Jonathan Ghost had the very unenviable task of going through about 400 years of church history in about 45 minutes, which is like a century every 11 minutes, which is really impressive. We get to go through about... 70 or 80 years in about 45 minutes, and even that is a struggle for me. So I'm really glad Jonathan did that. Um, let me grab my thing. Before we do that, I have a couple of disclaimers. Um, you're going to hear a lot of, I'm going to use, I think, language in, in this talk, and Jonathan used last week, of liberal versus conservative uh, churches. And he explained at some last week, and I'm going to explain again, uh, that's not political. Um, when th the people at the time and now are talking about liberal theology, they're meaning things like um, denying the virgin birth. These were things that were happening at the time we'll talk some about. Denying the resurrection of Christ, um, denying that the Bible is inspired, um, and conservative then would be the opposite of, of affirming those things. So, those, um, I don't want to be confused because I don't know that it's terribly helpful language, but it is what it is and it's what we have. Um, there's also a lot that I'm drawing very, very heavily from this book, uh, For a Continuing Church by John Michael Lucas. Thank you, Garrett Black, if you ever listen to this podcast, for giving that to me. Um, or lending it to me. He didn't give it to me. And then... I think that's it. So we'll go ahead. Um, there we go. All right. So a little bit of personal history with me and the PCA. Um, I grew up in the PCA. My dad was an elder in the PCA for 25 years or more. Um, most of my childhood, I spent attending Grace Presbyterian down in Fuquay Verena. North Carolina, and then I went to Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, or in um, outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then here after that, with a brief stint in Grace in between Chattanooga Valley and here. Uh, I also worked at Ridgehaven, which is the college of, or sorry, the camp of the PCA during my summers in college, and I attended Covenant College. So you would think I would know PCA history really well. I actually don't. This was, a lot of this was new to me, um, or at least the details were new to me. I knew the broad brushstrokes. Um, so we're going to talk about, we're going to pick up sort of in the 50s, 
talk about the um, culture in which the Presbyterian Church found itself, especially the Southern Presbyterian Church, or the Presbyterian churches in the South, and then about the formation of the PCA uh, a little bit, and then a few other things along the way and after. Um, so to recap, sorry, I have this to keep me honest on what's coming next, and it's not connected to that, so I'm getting mixed up. All right, so brief recap. Um, there was a whole lot, of, whole lot of history that Jonathan went through last week. Um, but for our purposes today, by the 50s in the U.S., there are kind of two main Presbyterian denominations that we're going to talk about, um, the PCUS and the UPCUS, so Presbyterian Church United States and United Presbyterian Church United States of America, which is a mouthful. The PCUS is, in general, more conservative uh, and contains within it the majority of the Presbyterian churches in the South, though there were many Presbyterian churches, there were churches in the North as well, and there were some very liberal forces in the PCUS, which eventually drives the PCA out. And the UPCUSA is uh, much more liberal, again, theologically liberal, uh, and politically in some ways. Uh, and they're mainly in the North. So that's kind of setting the landscape. Um, most of this is, again, from Shawn Michael Lucas's book. Oh, one other thing uh, I wanted to say at the front end. I generally like to ask questions and have interaction, and I didn't know how to do that with this. So this is just a presentation. I'm really sorry. Um, okay, so the landscape of the, the Presbyterian landscape of the 50s and 60s, these were some of the things they were dealing with. Um, it is uh, in a um, tense point in the Cold War, right? Shortly after World War II, so communism. You have desegregation and then integration, um, and I separated those because um, some of the church leaders at the time separated those. Uh, women's ordination, a change in the view of scripture and the church, um, and a change in the church's view of the biblical sexual ethic. Um, so the top two are more in culture, the bottom three are more in the northern church. So I'm just going to walk through some of the views of these things. And I put them in order on purpose. The bottom two are the things that mainly drive the creation of the PCA, and we'll see that as we go. Uh, a little bit the middle one. Um, and then the top two were things that the um, conservative church connected in some ways with some leaders, I should say. Everything is general. Some leaders connected with Scripture. Uh, the side ones don't work. All right. So, uh, for many Southern Presbyterians, and this was, um, this was just true of the culture, um, they were very strongly anti-communism. Uh, so, communism was much more in the front of their minds than it is for us now. So this quote, communism is a hell-inspired and demonically controlled ideology, which is an unceasing enemy, sorry, of God, his church, his, his Christ, his church, and all of those blessings and freedoms that flow from Christianity. That's the associate editor of the Southern Presbyterian Journal, Nelson Bell, who um, played a big role in the formation of the PCA, even though he didn't go. We'll maybe talk about that later. Um, and one of the complaints the Southern church had with 
and I'm going to kind of say Southern Church with Northern Church a lot. Um, so the Southern Church had with the Northern Church was that they would often combine um, political and church activities together. And we'll talk about this a little bit in a minute with the changing view of the church. And so I find it interesting that they then um, have this idea of supporting quote-unquote Christian economics. John Richardson, the Christian church has a sacred duty to train our young people in Christian economics. And by that, uh, he meant a number of things. Uh, Right to private property, principle of free enterprise, Christian interpretation of work, incentives, sinfulness of waste, proper observance of the observance of the fourth commandment and other things. I just found it interesting that um, when your main complaint is that you're getting too involved with um, earthly politics that you then have an earthly political position. But, um, and again, all of this is really general. Not everyone believed all these things, especially this. So there were uh, a number of Southern Presbyterians who were pro-segregation, or anti-integration, and this was a spectrum. Um, again, drawing very heavily from Lucas on this. So there were people who were uh, pro-segregation. There were people who were anti-integration, and they saw those two things as different. And then there were people who were pro-segregation, or sorry, anti-segregation and anti-integration, but anti-government involvement in that process as well. So it was a whole spectrum. And then there were people who were pro-government involvement. Um, there were people at the time who were concerned about interracial marriage. Um, some gave reasons rooting God's commandments to Israel, not to intermarry. And there were some arguments based on anthropology at the time. The quote, birds of a feather flock together was used. And I found this somewhat sad. Uh, in 1950, the Montreat Retreat, Retreat Association voted to segregate young people conferences. Now, they held multiple conferences uh, in connection with the Presbyterian Church. And they didn't segregate the adults, just the young people conferences, because um, they were worried about their children. But not all Presbyterians were pro-segregation. Uh, D. James Kennedy, when asked to join the Presbyterian, the PCA by Kennedy Smart, said this, I want to make sure you're not creating a racist or sectional church. If you are, count me out. But if you're not... And if you do not name it the Southern Presbyterian Church, then I'll be with you. And uh, I think about five years after the creation of the PCA Church, Kennedy brought his church into the PCA. So, this is just kind of a brief, and we'll touch a little bit on some of these issues again in the later because the, the PCA deals with some of this history at several different general assemblies that we talk about. Um, women's ordination was another issue that the church dealt with. So at the time, the UPCUSA allowed churches to ordain women to various offices. Um, and at the time in the 50s, I believe, there was talk of a union between the PCUS and the UPCUSA, first of several talks. And that led to concerns because the PCUS in general, and, and especially the more conservative churches within it, didn't um, nominate, or sorry, didn't ordain women to the office of elder or deacon. Um, but the 
union attempt failed initially, the initial one, again, it comes up a minute later. Uh, so these kind of concerns go away for a bit. And then these, are, these next few things are some of the things that really drive the formation of the PCA. So these are some of the views that are being held by the larger church and are leading to concern. So one, the Bible is not actually the revelation of God. It's an instrument of that revelation. So I had to think about this for it to mean something. But the idea was this. The revelation of God is God's words to his people, but the Bible isn't that. Right? The... The Bible is a witness, like a, imagine like an eyewitness telling you what was told. It's not actually God's direct words, which has a big implication then for how you view Scripture. Um, so there's a, there's a change in theology, too, that stated that humans are fundamentally good, and their problem is that they're alienated from God and his word, and they need help. They need political help. They need social help. They don't need a savior, necessarily. There's a rejection connected with those two things of absolute morality. So you no longer need um, God to, or you no longer abide by what God says. Um, morality is relative to the individual human at the time. We'll talk about how that plays into the sexual ethic in a minute. That was kind of the biggest thing. And then there's a de-emphasis, and this goes back to the second point, on showing a need for a savior and a new emphasis on comf comforting people in their alienated context. So the PCA was actually very, or the people that would eventually form the PCA were very concerned that there was a lack of focus on missions. Um, because if people aren't really sinners and they don't really need uh, a savior to reconcile them with God, they just need better access to healthcare or um, better political structures or whatever. We don't need to send missionaries. We need to send social workers. And those are good things. We, we could be doing those things. But, but at the end of the day, that doesn't save a person. doesn't reconcile them to God. All right. There's a, there's a change in the sexual ethic as well. These are a couple quotes um, from, I'm trying to remember, a couple different publications, I believe, at the time. So our culture declares that all sexual activity within marriage is legal, proper, and good, while any such activity outside of marriage is illicit, sinful, and wrong. This is the part. We know that there is sexual contact between unmarried couples that is motivated by love, and is, which is pure and on occasions beautiful. So the idea, um, and we'll get into a little bit more in a minute, the idea that what really matters is the love and connection and relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe, um, yeah, sorry, here it is. It is, uh, the National Council of Churches published a booklet entitled The Meaning of Sex in the Christian Life. That's where this is from. Um, and then there's another um, booklet distributed within the denomination, uh, and I don't know how to pronounce the name. C-O-L-L-O-Q-U-Y? Colloquy, maybe? Uh, it was this. 
If kids were made aware of alternatives, they wouldn't have to worry about getting into trouble. If there, were way, if there was some way you could stop pregnancy, I don't think there would be anything wrong with sex. The idea was the consequences of sex are the problem. It's not a relational problem or a sin problem at all. Uh, this, all of this led to some serious concern um, by those uh, leaders in the conservative movement for their kids. Um, yeah, so it led to serious concern for the youth in the denomination. There's campus ministers who are encouraging uh, sexual liberation under the guise of realistic approaches to sexuality. So the idea that, well, they're going to do it, they're probably going to do it anyway, so let's just help them mitigate the consequences instead of teaching them morality, telling them what God actually says. Um, this one, a covenant, or a college campus minister who argued premarital sex was permissible for those who had a covenant of intimacy already established. Marriage doesn't matter. You're in a serious relationship. Uh, and then a newspaper from one of the synods that mentioned um, created space for premarital sex, uh, saying it's the wisdom of this world, not God's revealed truth. So there's a movement um, away from a Christian sexual ethic. There's also a movement away from a Christian view of theology. I kind of mentioned it before. Um, People's problems is that they're alienated from God, not that sin is causing an issue. And uh, there comes to be a significant change in some portions as to how they view Jesus. And I'm about to put up a wall of text, and I apologize, but I wanted it all. Um, so this is from a 1968 youth Christmas youth convention. And I understand most of you probably won't be able to read that. So I'm going to read it for you. This is a song they sang. Um, and uh, at that youth convention. Again, this is, this is put on officially for the denomination. It was on a Friday morning that they took me from the cell. This is from the perspective of one of the other thieves that was uh, crucified beside Jesus. It was on Friday morning that they took me from the cell, and I say they had a carpenter to crucify as well. You can blame it on Pilate. You can blame it on the Jews. You can blame it on the devil. It's God I accuse. You can blame it on Adam, and you can blame it on Eve. You can blame it on the apple, but that I can't believe. It was God that made the devil, and the woman, and the man. And there wouldn't be an apple if that wasn't in the plan. Now Barabbas was a killer, and they let Barabbas go. But you are being crucified for nothing here below. But God is up in heaven, and he doesn't do a thing, with a million angels watching, and they never move a wing. To hell with Jehovah, to the carpenter I said, I wish that a carpenter had made this world instead. Goodbye and good luck to you. Our way will soon divide. Remember me in heaven, the man you hung beside. And then the chorus. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter, a hanging on the tree. And this is from the denomination at the time. So you could understand why there would be a lot of concern. We could spend the rest of our time picking this apart theologically and more. Um, but we won't. The PCUS, the Southern Denomination, yeah. Oh, and um, this is a quote. This, this portion was taken from uh, a piece that the James River Presbytery had about the formation of the PCA that they put together, I think it was like 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and they had some reports from people at the time. And uh, it's from, the, from that, commenting on this convention, the whole convention, not just the song, 
Three men from Beaumont, Texas wrote that they thought the planned purpose of the convention was to blaspheme the name of our Lord and to completely destroy any sense of morality in the youth of our church. Now, I don't know that we can stand here however many years later and say that we know the motives of the people who put on that conference. But the fact that those men felt that way is really telling. Um, Okay, so this is kind of the state of the church that where the movement out of the PCA takes place. So, moving forward. Through the 60s, and I found this really interesting, uh, through the 60s, the stance of the conservative Presbyterians was that they were working to reform the denomination. Um, I, don't have, I don't have the quote with me, but... Um, there was a bulletin put together called Concerned Presbyterians, and they listed out several of their concerns. Uh, and near the end, they mentioned that a lot of people are leaving the PCUS. A lot of conservative folks are leaving the PCUS. And they say, this isn't the answer. We need to stay and work and reform. Um, and then it, these trends continue So in the late 60s, the PCUS begins to push for official and unofficial unions with several more liberal denominations. So there is some talk of some union with the UPC USA. There's also some, I don't don't know how to put it, I don't have any real life experience with something like this, but um, this idea of trying to create a super denomination. So they're, they're bringing in four or five other churches that had very similar theology to the UPC USA. And, but like a Lutheran church and um, a Methodist church, I think. And so they're all going to have some of their distinctives, but they're also going to work very, very closely together. And that became a big concern because the theological issues that the conservatives in the PCUS had with the um, PCUS and the UPCUSA, they also had with all these other denominations, and they were going to be working much more closely with them. Um, and then, uh, officially, at the 1969 GA, that's General Assembly, a committee is established to explore the reunion with the UPCUSA. So, uh, and you can correct me, Jonathan, if I'm wrong. This was the initial split that you talked about, the UPCUSA and the PCUS. Not the initial split, but Yeah. There was a unification that happened. There was a sort of a movement to unite the Mormon church, and that's where the UPC USA comes from. Okay. Which I didn't get to. Uh, but, the, uh, um, but yeah, you're right. Um, they were looking to reun- re- basically come together with that original branch. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Kind of at that point, a lot of the conservative Presbyterians saw a split was inevitable. They, um, they didn't want to go through with this union. They already had concerns about the PCUS that they were trying to um, reform. And then you add on top of that that they're going to join with these other denominations that have, they have even more concerns about. So they see that as inevitable. So... Starting around that time, 
there's a more concerted effort to move the denomination in a conservative direction at the 1971 General Assembly, and it's largely thwarted. They were trying to put um, conservative people in the heads of agencies and organizations. It doesn't come to pass. So this year, there's a steering committee formed uh, to direct the planning of the new denomination. Um, I'll stop here. There's a whole lot of like, in if you want like all of the very Presbyterian details of like what committee met when and all that, that's a, that's on here. I'm not. We'd be here forever if I talked about all the. It was handled in a very Presbyterian way. There were lots of committees. It was great, and I I make that as a joke. Um, but you can tell based on how slowly they proceeded and how many people they sought to involve and the way they did it, that they really cared that they were being faithful to God. Um, there was not a desire to just leave to spite the church. Um, that never seemed to be a goal that they had. And so, yeah, I make a joke about um, it was very Presbyterian, and it was, but I think there's some beauty in that. There's also a difference of opinion among those present. So some wanted to leave right away. Some wanted to take some more time to, to slow things down. Um, again, at this point, it's not completely um, certain that the uh, PCUS and the UPCUSA will merge um, anytime soon. Spoiler alert, they don't. It's the 80s. And so they're like, well, maybe let's just wait and see. And some wanted to stay. So I mentioned Nelson, uh, Nelson Bell earlier. He um, is the associate editor at the time uh, for the Southern Presbyterian Journal and is spending a lot of time publishing pieces on the serious problems of liberal theology. So he is one of the main people calling attention to all the problems in the PCUS at the time. And he is one of the ones who who doesn't walk away. Uh, he, he can't reconcile his um, kind of understanding of the church with, with leaving, which I just find fascinating. All right, moving forward. In September 1972, Vanguard Presbytery is created with 10 churches leaving the PCUS. Um, yeah, I'm not going to comment on that one. There's a several other presbyteries that are formed throughout the next few years. I can't remember exactly how many. Um, in 1973, the union with the PCUS and the UPCUSA is delayed at least a year. I found this really interesting. Um, this is again from Lucas. The UPCUSA claimed that the delegates from the delegates from the Southern Church were being dishonest with their conservative groups. So there were they even even the more liberal church was pointing out to the PCUS, you're not, you're not being honest with these people in your denomination who disagree with you. Um, and part of the issue at stake was an escape clause. That, that's the language that gets used a lot. What that means is, at the time in that denomination, the denomination owned the church property. So if you were going to leave... Most of the time, it meant that you had to go find new facilities. There were a few churches that had won, uh, I think it was a Georgia Supreme Court legal battle to keep their property um, years before. 
So it's possible, but most of the people didn't want to go through a long, drawn-out court battle to keep their church building. So they, what they were hoping for, and this is why some people were wanting to wait, is that when the union happened, or was announced, that there would be this uh, escape clause that would say, okay, if you, if you as a church or you as a presbytery disagree with this union, you can get out for the next however many years, and you get to keep your property. So they were kind of waiting for that, and that was some of the disagreement that was happening in the union between these two denominations. Um, some within the PCUS didn't want to have an escape clause for those who would want to leave. All right. Um, so the, the planning committee and steering committee continues to meet throughout the year. They have a meeting that coincides with uh, National Presbyterian Reform Fellowship Rally. And Francis Schaefer was speaking at the rally, and he said this, when it is no longer possible to practice discipline in the church courts, then you must practice discipline in reverse and leave. But your leaving must be with tears, not with flags flying and bands playing. So many of the people who had wanted to stay and reform the church were trying to practice church discipline within church courts. They were... They were trying to make changes internally. They were bringing up uh, charges within the presbyteries if they thought necessary. And, and it just wasn't going anywhere. So this is, this is Schaefer's advice to them. And the committee, um, sorry, that should say was now, not was not, was now committed to practicing discipline in reverse. And they voted to bring the new denomination into existence at the end of that year. Out of time. Um, there was a convocation of sessions in uh, 1973 to determine what the new denomination would look like. Uh, again, I said it was very Presbyterian. There was a steering committee, and I appreciate, again, I appreciate this. There was a steering committee that said, we really think we need to get out, but they didn't think they had the authority to speak for all of the churches and say, this is how we should get out and what the denomination should look like. So they called uh, all the sessions for the churches who were interested in leaving, and they had a meeting to discuss this. So they, devoted, they voted to adopt the Westminster Standards of 1881 and the PCUS Book of Church Order in 1933. Um, part of the problem they had with the PCUS at the time was modifications made to both of those documents. And so they were going back to older versions of them that hadn't been modified as much. But then they promptly made some modifications. Uh, so they voted to amend the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, chapter 25, uh, 6, to remove language identifying the Pope as the Antichrist. If you are curious, you can go back and read the older version, I guess. Um, that was, that was uh, in from the original, the, the original uh, Westminster Divines, you know, thought the Pope was the Antichrist. They also updated the BCO to include language specifying that local churches had ownership over their property. Uh, that was a big deal. It gets mentioned again uh, in the first General Assembly, which happens at the end of this year, which we'll talk about now. In, uh, on December 4th, 1973, so 112 years to the day after the founding of the PCUS, the first General Assembly of the New Church takes place. They debated between several names. Uh, there was the National Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church in America, and another one I don't remember. Uh, they decided on the National Presbyterian Church, and that lasted about a year. 
then there was a legal challenge by National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., and they changed the name to the Presbyterian Church in America. And I do want to mention this. So there was a, a, a desire by many of the people moving out of the PCA to not have a regional church. They wanted this to be a national church, and that was part of, we've had D. James Kennedy quote earlier, the Southern Presbyterian Church, I th- there were a lot of people who didn't want that for the um, racial reasons, and there were also a lot of people who didn't want that for um, reasons of mission of the church. They thought that the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America should be for all the United States of America. And now uh, Canada also. Um, Okay, so I want to show a quick clip. Um, This is from Frank Brock. Frank Brock was a... um, a ruling elder at Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church, or sorry, that's where I went to church. He's a ruling elder at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church um, that I visited. I think Ross went there. Yeah. It's the same Frank Brock. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was on the session at the time that uh, Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church was looking to leave the PCUS, and he talks a little bit about their decision-making process. I just wanted to share it as an insight for how some of these conversations went. That was one of the uh, elders. Come out and press. And our pastor, George Long, said uh, we were kept hearing rumors of problems in the PCUS, and so uh, finally he came and said, I think uh, you need to make a decision. We had a window, a fairly narrow window, when we could get out, uh, and how we could get out, and uh, if we didn't take advantage of that opportunity in that window, we probably would not be able to get out. So we had a weekend officer's retreat. Uh, There were 28 members of the session, as I recall. I would say we were generally uninformed and probably equally divided in terms of whether we should go with the PCA or stay in the PCUS. And we invited each denomination to bring in a spokesman. We went from more or less equally divided to unanimous, 100% of the session voted to come out of the PCUS. And I think the whole argument boiled down to one simple thing, loyalty to the Presbyterian Church or loyalty to the scriptures. And I think we were aware that without the loyalty to the scriptures, any other form of loyalty would be kind of superficial and and maybe dysfunctional. It was a watershed moment. Everybody who was on the session at that time, I think, uh, considered it so. I never heard a single member of the session second guess that we'd made the right decision. So I, I find that helpful for a number of reasons. One, we can, um, it can sound like um, we, or, sorry. Um, based on everything that we talked about, it can sound like everyone in the, in the conservative wing was very aware of all the problems. And, and Frank said there 
they had kind of heard rumors of some of these problems, but it wasn't necessarily true that every church member or every elder was aware intimately of everything that we had covered. Um, and it's also, again, very Presbyterian of them to, um, to go and vote and discuss this amongst the session. And it's just very encouraging the way that God used that, that they had both people present and they went from pretty evenly split to unanimous on leaving. Uh, Jack Williamson, who Dan played a clip of his uh, sermon at the First General Assembly several weeks ago. I spoke at the First General Assembly, and he stated, We have committed ourselves to the rebirth and continuation of a Presbyterian church loyal to the Scripture, Reformed faith, and committed to the spiritual mission of the church as Christ commanded in the Great Commission. Um, that, was, that was really what the people leaving the PCUS wanted. Um, Loyal, a church that was loyal to the scripture, reformed faith, and committed to the Great Commission. Some more additions as we go. Uh, churches continued to leave. Oh, sorry, yeah. 73 uh, is when a lot of churches left. But churches continued to leave the PCUS, subsequently became the PCUSA after the merger happened in 1983. Uh, through 1990, and I actually think I read through 1992, but uh, 1990 was the window that churches could leave the denomination and still take their church property with them, I believe. Uh, the PCA also joined with the RPCES, Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. This is something that I think you might have talked about uh, had you had more time. They split from the OPC, correct? Like a year after the OPC founded? Is that right? Uh, I think that's the Bible Presbyterian. Oh, okay. 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 Um, this brings with it Covenant College and Covenant Theological Seminary into the PCA, which uh, at the time, but well, prior to that, uh, there hadn't been a college or seminary specifically under the PCA, and they were using more um, unaffiliated seminaries like RTS and Westminster. All right. So that's kind of the founding. I wanted to talk a few, a little bit, since it was. Uh, the class is PCA history and not PCA founding. Uh, talk about some other things that happened at General Assembly throughout the years, just to give you a sense of some of the questions that the PCA has dealt with. So the 8th General Assembly um, dealt with the question of theonomy, which if you're not familiar, is this is an oversimplification, but the idea that Old Testament laws um, should be used uh, in our current political climate to make our national laws or local laws. Um, this, these things I'm pulling from another website to kind of walk through some of these, and there wasn't a whole lot of discussion, and I couldn't go back and read the whole notes from that General Assembly, but they kind of punted the question, is my, what I gather, there wasn't completely resolved, but a lot of theonomists left the denomination after that General Assembly, so that kind of solved itself. Um, 14th and 16th General Assemblies dealt with the question of speaking in tongues. Uh, they determined that a candidate could hold the gift to hold to the gift of tongues, uh, that it still exists, provided that he did not believe that that provides any binding special revelation, um, which I appreciate. The 26th and 27th Assemblies uh, dealt with the question of views of creation, if one could hold views other than the literal 24-hour period. Uh, they were unable to come to a consensus on 
one view of the length of days and left open that you could have uh, various as to the time. Um, the 30th, General Assembly adopted a statement urging racial reconciliation. Um, I'm going to read something in a minute here. And the, the statement included a confession of past sins and a statement that they publicly repent of pride, complacency, and complicity in um, the mainly the civil rights movement. And then the 43rd and 44th assemblies brought this topic up again. There's another motion, um, and this is what I'm going to read from. There's an article in By Faith that I'm reading from that um, talks about Jim Baird and his speech at, the, I believe it's the 44th assembly uh, in 2015. Um, he's one of the few founders at the time. Um, and at the time, uh, alive at the time, and there were, there was some very heated discussion about adopting a, a motion of confessing some of these sins. And, and this is what Baird said. Um, for the sake of this, uh, sorry, Baird began by telling commissioners that in the early 70s, he was focused on one thing, starting a new denomination. In his heart, he knew the effort was for the sake of scripture, for the sake of the pres preservation of historic Presbyterianism, and for the furtherance of gospel proclamation. His focus was there, he said, and it was singular. And so he acknowledged, I did not raise a finger for civil rights, and therefore I confess my sin. Uh, and that led to a lot of confession and prayer at that General Assembly and relates to some of the topics we talked about earlier. Um, all right, we're going to, I think we're going to end with this. I may have timed this really well, which is a miracle. Um, we're going to watch another video. This video is Hans Madueme. Um Dr. Madueme is a professor at Covenant College. He's a Bible professor. He also has a medical degree. He's done a lot of work in bioethics. He's incredibly smart. Um, and the question put to him is about the future of the PCA and what does he see in the future and what does he have as hopes for the future. So uh, we're just going to watch that and then uh, bring us about the time. When I think about the future of the PCA, two things come to mind. I mean, one, I, I just, I, I would pray that the PCA would remain uh, theologically faithful, uh, steadfast, it would lean into the best in our reform tradition, where we're committed to the inerrancy of scripture, we're committed to the great doctrines of the faith, um, and our triune God, and that will be so in an unflinching and unapologetic manner. So that's the first thing. But I want that theological fidelity to be wedded to Christ-like humility, a Christ-like love, that, that we'll be theologically faithful, but we would hold that fidelity in a way that honors and represents our Savior. It's my feeling that in our cultural moment, I feel like the forces want us to choose one or the other. So you have some people just running down the sort of theological fidelity road without humility, and then others who want the Christ-like love without theological fidelity. And I, I don't want to be combative or curmudgeonly, but I, I feel like I want to say a plague on both your houses. I don't want either or, I want both and. I want us to be faithful and to be faithful in a Christ-like way, and I think 
if the PCA as a denomination is able to embody those two commitments, I, I would say the future is bright for our denomination. Um, I, I put that last because he said all that way better than I could. So um, it's time. I'm going to go ahead and pray uh, to close this. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that you um, work in history. Um, thank you that you um, have given us people who've gone before us, um, flawed as they may be, who care deeply about your word and your church. Um, thank you that you uh, continue to um, protect your church and that you will continue to protect your church through the end of time until Jesus comes back. Um, be with us this morning. Give us um, receptive ears and hearts uh, to hear the word preached. May we glorify you in worship and encourage each other uh, through that time. In Jesus' name, amen.